is that everything is going to look too dark until everything is locked in, and then it's going to look too light, right? So then, as a way to check that color mixture before you commit to modeling in whole area, you can basically just use this as an observation tool, and it's so easy and it's so effective. Okay, brilliant. Okay. Very good. Let me know how you like it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Kevin Mann in the UK says, uh, lovely use of color. Uh, can I ask, do you use layers and glazing? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, so I, I tend to work a bit more of, with a direct painting technique. And that basically means that I will find the color and value destination in a given area. And uh, I will kind of work towards that. So I don't rely on glazing uh, a lot. But I will layer the painting, um, you know, maybe through two, three layers, let's say, in a given area or four layers, depending on what's kind of required in a given area. So also if it's a small painting, maybe we're not able to conclude it in one painting session in comparison to working with a, a larger composition that may require a little bit more you know, paint layers and investigation. But I will tend to build up my painting with a pretty direct painting technique um, not, and not rely on glazing so much. But glazing has still a part in my particular process. Let's say if I start out a painting session and I know I can go a little bit darker in an area, but I still want the details from the previous painting session to shine through, then maybe I will oil out a bit with a tinted uh, sort of oiling out, which is basically what glazing is. So maybe I'll have a mixture containing, let's say, ivory black and, uh, and uh, alistair crimson or whatever is the case, just to kind of create a bit of a tinted uh, oiling out, which is what glazing is. And then what I will often do is that I will work into that again. Um, so I will use it maybe as a means to kind of start out the painting session um, more often than allowing it to be the final lid on the painting, for example. But there are moments when I will use a little bit of that kind of transparency or glazing technique when, for example, working with a background that I want to have really flat and really dark and really blue, for example. Maybe then I will build up the initial layer with slightly faster drying pigments so that I can work with a thin, you know, conclusive layer of, let's say, Prussian blue or ultramarine blue or, uh, or whatnot. So glazing basically means kind of layering a transparent pigment over in a given area. Uh, so I don't tend to use it so much for portraiture, but there are qualities with glazing that direct painting cannot achieve. For example, you can get much stronger color saturation with glazing. So when painting, let's say, copper pot or something that is very colorful and very metallic and very shiny, then I think using a bit of a combination there with a, a direct painting technique and a bit of glazing can be really optimized. Just to make sure that you get a little bit of that kind of color saturation and you get the kind of brighter value uh, in combination, for example. So I don't know if that answered that <laughs> yes, uh, <I> question. Did. <laughs> yeah, Very comprehensively. <laughs> More so. Yeah, I'm very thorough. <laughs> uh, Kevin also asks, um, how do you choose colors slash mix them? And Carly Kate Harvey in Australia says, fantastic work. I'm wondering what inspires your color palette for each painting. So you've kind of touched on that, but is there anything else you want to add to that? 
Um, no, I think we, we spoke a little bit about it. So, yeah, maybe just to synopsize then and then let me know if that kind of covers it. But, uh, yeah, I will I'll modify that my, um, my, um, the exact colors I'll have on my palette relative to the composition. But the, there will be a lot of the same colors that will reappear. So it's not completely random. There, there is a color consistency on my palette. There's go-to colors I will always kind of bring along. But often I will rotate the red pigment, for example, because that has such a great impact on the color story or the color uh, expression uh, on the palette. Um, you know, whether it's going to be a cool pink or warm pink or an orange pink, if you're tinting it with white, let's say. So my advice is, if you are in doubt in which colors to use for your composition, then tint it with white to see what comes closest to the destination of your painting to see if you're able to express the color that, that uh, you have in your composition or if that matters at all. Um, that would be my advice. And I think that more often than not, changing the red has a, has a really great impact, especially with working with the portraiture um, and the figure. Right. So if I understood what you said, um, you've got your idea for your painting, not you, but you know the, the person you're talking to. You've got the idea for the painting, and then if you're thinking about a color, you know, to include in that palette, then do a sort of gradiated um, tint with with white to see the spectrum of that color, and then see if that's going to work in with your idea for yeah. the painting. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. So the colors on the palette will sort of have different tasks in a way they'll have a different job <laughs> assignment. And so I, I avoid using colors that overlap each other in function because I don't think it's a point to have a, uh, an excessively complicated palette. So it's not, in my opinion, uh, typically necessary to use a, you know, three different types of ochre by different brands and a uh, raw sienna, for example. That becomes a bit obsolete. So just to keep it as simplified as possible, but you can also create a really extensive range by making sure that the colors that you choose have sort of very specific occupation uh, on the palette. Yeah, that's great. That's a great tip. Maureen O'Mahony again uh, in Kerry here says, uh, what medium or mediums do you like to use? I like to be as uh, simplified as possible uh, with, uh, with the medium. So I just use the linseed oil or walnut oil. Okay. Simple as that. Sometimes I will maybe bring in a bit of a uh, stand oil or a bodied oil um, if I just want to change a bit the, the consistency of the paint. But uh, I figure that since oil paint already consists of linseed oil and a pigment, you know, you can't go wrong with a walnut or, or linseed oil as a, as a medium. So I, I stay away from uh, liquids and super complicated mediums. I, I yeah. <laughs> Keeping it simple. Okay. Um, Harvard Loveness in Trondheim in Norway. Hey. <laughs> Trondheim, did I get that right? Trondheim, yeah. Trondheim, yeah, okay, pretty close. Uh, Cornelia, you have, in my view, a quite original and beautiful way of using colors in your paintings. A good example is in your portraits. When you're combining more subtle tones in the rendition of the face with a high chroma background, is there a particular inspiration behind this? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Um, hmm. 
high com yeah so it's talking more about the co the uh, composition there in a way just having yeah there I think that there are maybe some portraits of Liz. I wonder if you're referring to there, where I would, for example, have a uh, a model uh, whose portrait who has a very fair complexion and has she has a lot of cool undertones. They're almost pearlescent undertones to her skin. So very cool pink, uh, sort of juxtaposed with uh, sort of cool bluish purple in the transitional half tones, and. Uh, there is something about that color combination, I think, in harmony with, for example, a very deep burgundy or a orange, you know, that really creates a color contrast, a kind of a color pop, uh, sort of between the, you know, shimmering complexion of, for example, Liv, uh, to a kind of very heavy weighted, sort of very uh, chromatic uh, background. Um, also, with some of the paintings there I'm just thinking about, um, choosing, for example, a background that is very red can push out the cooler tendencies of somebody's complexion, whereas uh, choosing, let's say, a background that is very blue is going to push out the red undertones in someone's complexion. And depending on what the complexion is, if we're talking about, uh, let's say, Italian complexion, they'll have a lot of olive, a lot of green, a lot of gold, uh, or like Nordic, or, um, you know, whichever complexion or whichever value of the complexion, uh, it's just really interesting to see that interplay between the color of the background as well as the value, see how that interacts with the temperatures uh, in someone's complexion. So yes, I will, I will think about that uh, quite a bit and explore that uh, quite a bit. I also really love the color yellow because it also has such a warm, such a vibrant color and seeing that with, you know, a slightly cooler undercurrent um, or a cooler complexion, I just think it creates such a vibrant and you know, a mesmerizing color combination that I, I'm really drawn to. <laughs> Brilliant. Pearlescent. It's so nice to be able to get that into a conversation. <laughs> Such a lovely word. <laughs> yes. Um, and it really ties together with just the sequence of temperatures, and we can see this on all surfaces, that there's going to be an interaction of warm and cool temperatures. And so depending on what the light source is like, we can often see, let's say, a warm shadow. You're going to see a cooler transitional halftone. And then you'll see a mixture of cool and warm, let's say, in a portrait. Over, overall, the light shape will be quite warm, but there will be some transitional halftones that will tend a little bit cooler. And so if somebody has a cool complexion, those halftones will express themselves a little bit more purple. If somebody has a warm complexion, they will express themselves as a little bit more green. Very good. Um, this is sounding like just a big ad for your Patreon page because <laughs> you're so knowledgeable and you're just this is just tripping off your tongue all this brilliant information. <laughs> Thank you. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, God, I'm really enjoying this podcast. I've listened to a few now and they're brilliant, and there's so many of them. And I've learned so much from listening to them. And you know what? If I met that John Dalton fellow in real life, I'd love to buy him a cup of tea and have a chat with him. I'd love to do that every month if I could. Well, now you can. The tea part, at least, because this podcast runs on cups of tea, 
bought for me by people like you who listen to the podcast and send me the price of a cup of tea once a month through the Patreon account. That's patreon.com forward slash John Dalton, Gently Does It, all one word. And if you're one of those people who already send me cups of tea through Patreon, thanks a million. The tea is lovely, and I really appreciate it. Now, the great thing is that if you can't afford to send me the price of a cup of tea or you don't want to, that's fine. You still get exactly the same podcast for free. It's sort of an honor system where the people who can afford it and want to pay for the people who can't or don't want to. So it's all lovely. So if you'd like to send me a cup of tea once a month, you can do that through Patreon. I'd really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference to me. Okay, Sash in India. Um, I hope I got your name right there. Sash says, Hi, John, sir. Thanks for having Cornelia in your podcast. Cornelia, I feel your paintings are breathing and has life in it. Which brushes are your most favorite? Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there is this one question here. Um, the other one was an observation, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, hmm, that's a good question. I, I do have my favorite bundle of brushes. I do. But they are actually a mixture of different types of brushes. So, I will work with more hog hair bristle brushes when, I, when working with the underpainting, just because it's faster to cover an area in comparison to when you work with a really small brush, let's say, with a very soft hair, it's not going to be particularly effective at covering a larger area or massing something in. But it's going to be the, br the brush that you want to select for when working with the intricacy of the drawing. Um, so using a combination of different size brushes and different hair brushes, that's, I think, crucial because they have slightly different personalities. And so having a selection of them enables you more of a full range of paint manipulation, essentially, and paint application. Uh, so that being said, I, I do say that I treasure specifically or especially um, my uh, Grafilo brushes by uh, Escoda. Uh, so the Grafilo series is uh, sable hair brushes uh, by Escoda, and I love them. And I will always end up having a few of them in my painting session. I think especially when working with very subtle information or with some smooth transitions. So I will often work with sable hair brushes when working with a transitional dark half tone, let's say because that enables me to work in different direction with a brush without generating a lot of paint texture. And with something that I want to kind of optically have receding, I, I don't work with so much texture. Uh, so it's a little bit more flat, opaque, but flat, smooth, in contrast with maybe adding a little bit more texture, uh, textural application in the area of the light, for example, just to, you know, emphasize the illusion that it is kind of protruding from the canvas. Um, yeah, so my uh, Grafilo brushes, and I do have just some odd, you know, sad-looking brushes that sometimes, you know, <laughs> do the best job <laughs> at uh, modeling uh, transitions in the forehead or, you know, working in a particular area. So I do have some of those brushes that you wouldn't believe that they would be useful, but they do this thing. They just, you know, behave with the, with the paint in a certain way. I have a few of them from Blick Studio Bristol. Not a particularly, you know, expensive or fancy brush. It's more of a, in the American market from, from Blick. 
um, yeah, they wor- they wear out, but they are also really great when they are kind of working. And mostly round or flats, or do you have a preference, or just just depends? Yeah, thank you for following up on that. Um, so when I was a student, we were uh, recommended to just just to kind of buy the initial bundle of brushes of. Um, um, uh, Silbert hog hair uh, bristle brushes, and Silbert has a little bit of a rounded tip to them, and that I think is a really important brush to have in the brush collection. But more and more, I find that I never have enough uh, flat-shaped brushes, often referred to as brights, but also flat. So they just have a little bit of a kind of brush cut sort of uh, sharp edge to them. Because I find that those brushes think in planes a lot more. And I'm very form-oriented when I work with the modeling of the form. Uh, so through that, I, I'd like the translation of my colors and values to translate the articulation of volume. And I just find that uh, flat brushes um, enable me to do that a little bit more. So that would be my go-to brush for when modeling a round form. Uh, maybe um, the silver brushes I will use a little bit more if I want to have a bit more of a random movement, actually. Um, sometimes, though, the uh, the flat brushes is going to create a little bit of a residual edge or edges. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But a really great brush to use in combination with it, just to whisk away those types of unwanted um, moments or lines, is a, something like a mop or using a... I refer to them as diffuser brushes. So brushes that are, you just keep dry and they're very soft and you don't really use them to apply paint with, but you just use them to manipulate the paint once it's on the canvas. So what it does is basically pushing a little bit of the paint across the the canvas without like migrating uh, a whole brush stroke. And it's a great way if you want to take away a little bit of texture or create a little bit of a fusion between the transition. So that is often the brush I will use in combination with a um, with a flat or with a bright brush when modeling before. Yeah. Somebody told me that um, makeup brushes are great for that sort of thing. And they're, yeah. Uh, because they're that soft, you know. Exactly. <laughs> I haven't tried I have it, a but bunch, but uh, I never adopted them into my painting. They are <laughs> 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 they have their own drawer. <laughs> but, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that, uh, that those could be used. And it took me years before I even got the concept of using a diffuser brush. Uh, because you can work with a lot of softer brush strokes just by overlapping your brush strokes as mm. well. But sometimes it just becomes so labor-intensive. And it's using one of those brushes just to whisk away. Like, okay, there, that's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> you know, so often I will see what I can do just with overlapping brush strokes. But I always end up, uh, or usually end up, working with a bit of a diffuser brush as well. Okay. Um, how do you check yourself as you're working? You know, like some artists use mirrors a lot, or they're squinting a lot, or they turn the painting upside down, or they'll be taking photos on their phone, um, yeah. or they'll be getting getting friends in to give them critiques. What do you do? All of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, when we translate nature, there are so many lenses at which we have to observe uh, in order to translate the different aspects of nature. Because nature, uh, in a visual uh, manifestation of structure, you know, is um, composed of so many elements. It is partly value, it's partly color, it's partly rhythm, 
this partly line, and that means that as we're translating something, uh, you know, from a natural composition into a painting in a representational tradition, we have to juggle all of these elements. Uh, and so, therefore, using observation tools that are great for seeing value well, as well as using observation tools or kind of a, a mindset that you can explore the rhythm, rhythmic connection between forms. For example, looking at the interaction between positive and negative shapes, you know, that is really helpful as well. So when we observe nature, the more we can look at it from different perspectives, I think we are more equipped at translating the different aspects of it. So it's not a singular thing, because that's not reality. Reality is just filled with complexity, you know, also from a visual perspective. So if you can look at it from, you know, many different perspectives, we have more strength uh, to kind of catch any inconsistencies or inaccuracies. So I am an avid mirror user, for sure. I'll use the mirror. <laughs> just looking, you know, hold it right here so I can see the composition in reverse. That's a great way to catch uh, a tendency of a cheek becoming a little bit too large on one side in com comparison to, or in, uh, yeah, in comparison to the other side. Or if we're working with a, uh, a vase or symmetrical form. Most of us have a little bit of a kind of cognitive asymmetry in this regard. And you know, we'll create a vase that is leaning a little bit. Uh, that's very common. So then using a mirror, just observing information in reverse, is a great, effective way at, at uh, catching that. I also look in the mirror upside down. That's also one of my favorite observation uh, techniques with the mirror. Um, so if you're listening, Cornelia is holding um, her hand up to her face at different places <laughs> to uh, illustrate this. I know if you're listening, you can't see this. So when she's saying holding it upside down, you hold it above your head and look up into it, is it? or? You can do that, or you can uh, put the uh, a mirror, um, like a I guess six by eight inches, ten by five six centimeters thereabout. And so if you look into the mirror, if you hold have it on your nose, just rest it on your oh, nose, okay. and you can visualize yeah. it, and then look into it. That's how I prefer to to look into it. Okay, yeah. and then before that, you had it at the side of your head. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> at uh, okay. the temple. Uh, temple. Yeah. yeah. Just so that you can see the composition, and if it's next to the, uh, or to you see your painting, and if it's next to the composition, see them both in reverse uh, at the same yeah. time. Yeah. But looking at nature upside down is also just a really powerful tool of abstraction. And it is a bit of a paradox that as we are translating nature in a realistic tradition, we have to, or it is very effective to abstract information. Um, because we have so preconceived notions all the time that we have to kind of fight against uh, a bit. So when we look at something from an abstract perspective, we can look at what the design is, proportion is, the rhythm of it. Um, and so, for example, uh, working with mirror techniques for that is a wonderful way to abstract. And I squint a lot too. Squinting is so helpful. So squinting, you can really simplify information because squinting basically removes a lot of detail. And sometimes when one starts out, um, one can get a bit overwhelmed by the information that is in a composition and maybe start to focus on elements that are not so significant as you're establishing structure. And details don't matter if the structure doesn't work. 
Yeah. A wallpaper does not matter if the foundation of the house is wonky. <laughs> you want to establish those elements uh, before kind of getting into to uh, details. So squinting yeah. is a great tool for that. Yeah. I stopped squinting myself. Um, what I did was I got, you know, when you go to the, um, you sort of see them in pharmacies, these reading glasses that with uh, different strengths. So I've got a really strong pair, and I'm just going to have them on top of my hand. I just drop them down, and then I don't have to use all my facial muscles to squint because it just immediately makes it blurry. That's uh, a good tool. Innovation. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should sell this for artists, blur, blurry vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, do you take pictures on your phone? I don't. Uh, I was never into the habit of doing that, just because uh, when I was a student, I didn't have a phone that, that did that. So, mm. uh, so I never incorporated it into sort of my toolkit. But students uh, I work with do it, and I think whichever tool that works is great. So I would absolutely yeah. encourage uh, anybody to do this as well. And it sort of has the same effect. It creates a little bit of a distance between... Uh, the work is it, psychologically interesting, too, because it sort of makes it a little bit more objective. Um, you know, when you're in front yeah. of the easel and you've been studying that image for hours, you know, it's a very subjective, it's a very personal experience. And sometimes yeah. you need to step back and get a little bit of that distance. And so visually, but I think also psychologically, taking a picture of it, looking at a smaller screen out of context is a very effective way to do that. I can definitely see yeah. the value of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so easy to make it black and white. You can see the values really <laughs> they jump out at you very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. going to say uh, using uh, the black mirror also hmm. uh, is a great tool. Yeah, it sort of does the, a lot of the squinting for you in terms of simplifying uh, the relationship between dark and light uh, values. So that's a very effective way. I think for anybody who... Uh, who kind of struggle to key their paintings or and drawings uh, to push the darkest values dark enough just to give a bit of that range of transitional halftones to work with. Using the black mirror is a really powerful way to really ensure that the darkest values become dark enough because everything you see in dark mirror is going to be interpreted as a little bit darker. So basically by how we see nature, you know, that is going to affect how we um, translate it as well. So we can also use, you know, a black mirror just to uh, encourage the translation of darker values to get a bit more range of halftones, for example. Very <laughs> good. Uh, what sort of lighting setup do you have in your studio? Mm. So since uh, a lot of the uh, the work I'm currently doing is uh, filmed, also to make uh, tutorials from, I'm using um, artificial light right now just to create a uh, light consistency. Yeah, so uh, I've had the, the great fortune of also having beautiful, perfect uh, north light uh, in my studio, and you know nothing compares to that for sure. It's the most uh, magical type of light. I've also been in studio situations where I had direct light coming into my space, and uh, that is very challenging because that uh, starts to make those shadow shapes move around. But it, it can also create some really interesting and very beautiful light sort of situations in a way. So mm. the element of light is often a question that, that comes up, and I do think it's really important to talk about also 
today because we do have so many solutions available for us if you don't have a perfectly dwarf-faced uh, studio. Uh, you know, don't worry. There, there are solutions there in terms of this really beautiful or very effective uh, LED lights on the market now as well. And it becomes, you know, more development uh, in that field. They're becoming a little bit more budget-friendly as well. Yeah, yeah, very good. I think you froze. Um, I, I might have, my screen might have frozen, but I'm, you can still hear me okay, can't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I'll start moving again in a minute. At least I didn't fr- okay. freeze with some weird expression on my face, which ha- can happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> you look very peaceful. Yeah, I've actually nodded off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what, if anything, do you listen to as you work? Right. Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I tend to listen to music a lot. Although lately I've also gotten into the podcast uh, sort of stream a bit and, um, yeah, listen to a lot of crime shows. Um, but in terms of music, I'll also... <laughs> crime podcast. Crime podcast. I don't know what the draw is, but it's very fascinating somehow. <laughs> yeah, it seems um, to be common among artists. They listen to these crime shows. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think that it's it's something about um, being able to process danger in a very safe environment. Um, mm. I, that's kind of my thesis on on why why do I listen to this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and also, uh, it ties together also with um, kind of seeing the shadow side of of the human mind. I guess, manifested in, you know, this the terrible scenarios. And um, mm. there is a fascination with that, I think, in terms of trying to understand the human mind, human psychology. And maybe that's why uh, it sort of resonates with artists. That would be my theory. Mm. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, and so what kind of um, music do you listen to? I... I listen to all kinds of genres, and I will listen to different uh, genres sort of periodically. Um, in the last year or so, I listened to a lot of jazz, a lot of jazz fusion, because I I just find that there is so much rich music sort of sound uh, within that genre. But of course, that is true for all genres as well. I'm very picky, extremely picky with the choice of music. But I also enjoy a lot of different genres, so classical music, jazz, sometimes blues, um, and I listen to um, classical Indian music a lot, uh, also Middle mm-hmm. Eastern music a lot, um, Middle Eastern uh, and Western jazz fusion a lot. Um, yeah, I like music that is very, very layered and mm-hmm. uh, very rich with uh, percussion and melody. Uh, probably have a, a gravity to um, slightly melancholic music as well. Um, so a lot of quarter notes, which is, I think, why I'm, I kind of gravitate to Middle Eastern music and Indian music a lot as well. Always have. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that would explain why you're not wild about the Eurovision music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be on the opposite side of that scale. Yeah. Thin. Really thin music. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, no, very little depth. Yeah. It hurts. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing how something can be so soulless on one side. Well, that's harsh, I understand, for somebody who likes it. But, like, in my opinion, like, it has no resonance. It, but it's painful. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, Michael J. Sheridan here in Ireland says, in relation to drawing, he's asking in relation to drawing, uh, what paper and tools uh, do you work with? Uh, all right. Uh, I've actually pretty simplified in terms of the tools I work with when drawing. So I am not the most um, um, explorative, I guess, uh, a person when it comes to, to the drawing things, I, I tend to be pretty um, limited sounds, maybe uh, not the right word, but I, yeah, I'm fairly restricted within the tools that I use, and then I work a little bit more with, I guess, layering the drawing. That's a roundabout way to answer that question. But I'll work on, uh, for example, Boma paper when working with uh, charcoal. I like canson paper, uh, methane canson paper, when working with uh, graphite, for example. And um, Stonehenge is also great for when working with um, uh, graphite, um, as well as a little bit of, uh, of chalk drawings as well. So I, I, I tend to keep it pretty simplified. Uh, I think also because I, I sort of feel or kind of feel what works for me kind of within the medium of drawing as well. Um, and then sometimes I work with uh, charcoal, sometimes uh, graphite, sometimes uh, graphite and chalk. But I haven't really explored a lot beyond uh, so the limitations of, of the elements I just mentioned. So I keep it pretty simplified and then just think more about the composition and how I build the, the drawing, um, you know, how I layer it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Carla Frank in South Africa says, uh, which do you enjoy more, portraiture, still life, or landscapes, and why? Um, well, I don't, I can't say that I don't enjoy one thing more, but I will say that I, I consider portraiture and uh, still life to be a little bit more my field, my, my field of focus. And I don't have a lot of uh, experience, a lot of focus on landscapes. So I, I do occasionally do them. And I also now live in a very beautiful um, uh, just village in the, on the coast of Norway in Oskarstrand. And it's very close to nature as well. So I do feel inspired to work with landscapes. But it's almost as if I feel like it could be a... That's where I could be a hobby painter in a way, which would be so luxurious. I would love that, just to you know paint for pure pleasure, uh, and not necessarily for profession. So, I know there may be some overlap there. I would love to go into to landscapes as well, but it is the uncharted territory for me. Um, land, uh, portraiture and um, still lives, I I love them both. And there may be different aspects to why. When I started out painting, I was always drawn to portraiture and to expression, emotion. And I think that the portraiture is a sort of instant connection there. It's the, the most effective conduit, in a way, of uh, channeling a expression or conveying a emotion. 
So it's a very immediate uh, genre for that. So since childhood, I was always very interested in psychology and in in people. Um, yeah. So that was that was the way that kind of went into uh, to art of the field. So that's always very dear to my heart. And then when uh, during my studies, we had to also create projects uh, for uh, still life uh, paintings. And that wasn't in a genre I was particularly interested in to begin with, but through exploring it, I really fell in love with it. So one of the aspects that I really love about uh, still life paintings is that it can be a bit of a meditation of nature, meditation of, on a theme or on beauty. And like to have the, the privilege, absolute privilege to paint, for example, like flowers, I was sometimes incorporated into my still life composition and to see them kind of move through uh, kind of a cycle of life and death and, and kind of dance around like not until I painted the rose did I really appreciate you know how much it actually moves uh, during a day because one can just spend hours observing it so there's something about that connection I think to life and, and nature that I, I love about uh, still life painting very good. Um, Gregory Perry in Australia and on Patreon. Thanks for the tea, Gregory. Uh, he says, Hi, John. Thanks for your podcast. Cornelia, you are brilliant. Um, <laughs> what, do you, <laughs> what do you look for when planning a portrait? The results are, I think, always a unique human. Thank you so much. Oh, um, that is... That is a little bit tricky also. I have to reflect on this for a couple of seconds. What I look for, I, I would have to say it's something in that one feel. Um, that the, what is it that resonates in a composition? It can almost be a bit of an intuitive response. Like you can start off with something as simple as, ooh, I like that, or no, this doesn't work. So there is something almost looking at it or experiencing a composition intuitively and emotionally. I would almost start there. And then, you know, comes the analysis. Let's say if I'm setting up a composition or working with a model or exploring a theme, um, I like to brainstorm a lot. So there will maybe be a bit of a brainstorm looking at different angles of light. That's kind of boiling it down to the compositional elements looking at the interaction between the shadow shape and the light shape, seeing how those abstract rhythms kind of work together, how the puzzle pieces of those values kind of lock together. And if there's sort of a pleasing rhythm to the shadow shape and the flow of light, uh, you know, that is central to the composition. Uh, or if there's some element of the rhythm, you know, how the arm you know, travels into the hand and then goes into the portrait, like for example, um, sort of abstract rhythms as well. So those are visual elements, I think, that I will be analyzing, but it can also really begin intuitively, just as in, this is great. So even working with model, sometimes, you know, they will uh, get into some really interesting moments, like during their break, <laughs> you know, just like looking at those little fleeting moments, yeah. you know, there is like elements there that one can sometimes uh, work from as well. 
Um, so when working from uh, uh, with models, uh, when taking pictures of models, so you know I work not now because of Corona, um, but before working from life. Um, but also when take, having a photo shoot, um, I started to also take a have a camera and actually record the photo shoot precisely to be able to catch those little fleeting moments uh, that are sort of out of the post. Those can be really interesting mm. as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, I've been I've been asking people about that for ages. It always seems like a really obvious thing to do is to make video as well as stills. Yeah, because you can absolutely you can get those moments. But it is interesting too because I I will find that um, you know I have the the, the privilege and benefit of of having two cameras. So I'll have a camera to take the pictures, and then I'll have the the camera that can record. Um, and uh, more often than not, I also end up maybe using or referring to the images that is composed a little bit more. Um, but you know, it, it's unpredictable. Uh, anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Dan Alcazar says, uh, what was one piece of advice given to you as a student that is invaluable to you as an artist today? Hmm. That or I feel like I have to go into the memory bank to 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 find that the right answer. I'm not sure if I can come up with that uh, impromptu. Uh, there are so many, you know, smaller epiphanies uh, that occur, you know, as a student, especially when you have good guidance. Uh, you know, people can tell you to squint <laughs> or use the mirror uh, or you know how to you know just do simple things and you know, take care of your brushes. I mean that's those are maybe a little bit banal in in this context because it you know the the question kind of wants something more uh, seeks more wisdom I think um, and I'm I'm not able to to find that sort of impromptu. It's a little bit more of the the collection of like those different moments that kind of culminate together. To, to generate a complete uh, experience. Yeah, so other than that, I would have to say something like, yeah, using using the butterfly mirror, that's pretty cool. Um, we didn't go into that now because it's so complicated to explain. You have to do it visually. <laughs> but like that is one of those sort of mind-blowing, you know, uh, mirror tricks that I, I wouldn't want to be without. So that's a big uh, cornerstone in how I make uh, observations as well. Sorry to mention it now, not going into it. <laughs> but that's a very practical element, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have to reflect on that. Okay. So you don't have one phrase <laughs> that turned everything around, and that's how you're brilliant. Because <laughs> that's really what the person's asking. <laughs> yeah. You one phrase that just turned everything around for you. Um, okay. everything. <laughs> yeah. 42. <laughs> yeah, 42. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you're listening. Um, yeah. Sort of you can look it up. Um, okay. Uh, Maria Herrera in New York, and longtime supporter of the podcast on Patreon. Thanks for the tea, uh, Maria. Says, what were some observations you saw in yourself in your transition from art student to artist? Mm. Um, so in myself... Okay, I'm sort of thinking about this also through creative expressions. That's a 
That's a really good question as well. Wow, this is deep. I need time to reflect on some of these. <laughs> they should be honored with a better response, uh, with a good response. So when I was an art student, I, before going to the Florence Academy of Art, uh, which was a great fit for me, I uh, went to I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from a university in Canada. I went there to study psychology, changed my major into uh, fine arts, didn't know what I got into, super naive. <laughs> so I realized then that I ended up in a very conceptual art school. And I think that's a very uh, classic uh, story for a lot of artists as well. Um, and yeah, very on the conceptual sort of sliding scale. They're very, very conceptual art school. So <clears throat> within that training, you learn a lot of rhetoric, um, a lot of semantics, but not a lot of um, the, the craftsmanship uh, or the connection to history. That was always my interest. So I was certainly fish out of water there. So everything that I kind of figured out there, it was basically self taught until that point and then going to, to art school. So I'm just mentioning this because I think it ties a little bit to when I came to Florence Academy of Art as a student, I was so hungry for that information and knowledge because I, I had already gone through uh, a university degree without really gaining it. And I think through that frustration, it was also abundantly clear to me, abundantly, um, what I was seeking. So I think I had a pretty strong sense of myself artistically from the onset of my uh, of my, my studies uh, at the Florence Academy of Art, uh, which was a very focused school in terms of translating the craftsmanship of drawing and painting. So that was just enormously useful, and that was exactly what I needed and wanted. And prior to that, I felt that I was that I had just kind of scratched the surface of what I was. Uh, wanting to express visually and through gaining basically the language of drawing and painting, you know, I kind of gained that, the liberty, the freedom to express myself visually without having, um, you know, uh, not knowing the technique of drawing and painting holding me back because it is a visual language and one do have to learn it in some way um, in order to express oneself uh, you know, uh, visually. Yeah. So I think that the the core of who I was artistically, I already had a very strong sense of as I was going through my uh, education. Um, and then that was actually pretty self-assuring component as well because I felt through that I was able to basically um, leave my creative well and not feel threatened by academic training, if that makes sense. Uh, some students yeah. feel that they, they, you know, their creativity is squashed a bit when they go through a, a vigorous academic training, because of course it's not really about the personal expression when learning this language. So it is you have to put it aside. You can, you know, keep it alive, but just know that it's not going to happen in school. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen in your sketchbooks. <laughs> Um, so I think that, that that was an aspect uh, of that process for me that was really helpful. I thought that I was, I was quite strong in my, in my vision and I could put it aside and uh, just keep it really open and flexible and just hungry and absorbent mind in kind of taking on board all of these uh, 
uh, kind of academic uh, techniques. Right. So, if I get the flavor of this question right, they're sort of talking about that moment when you're standing with the doors to the Florence Academy behind you, and it's your last day, and you're leaving, and then the sort of journey from there to becoming an artist. But I think it's probably a bit different for you because you kind of transitioned into teaching as well as, you know, those two things in parallel. So you didn't really leave the kind of educational side of things in, a, in, the, in the way I think the person who's asking the question uh, is, uh, my ear is, uh, is uh, asking. But um, ha can you speak a little bit about, I know you were teaching as well, so you're still in the academic thing, but you would have also been becoming the artist that you are now. And were there any um, things that you noticed in that transition? Um, all right, let's see. Um, that's yeah, still still having to kind of resonate with that. Well, certainly a question that often comes up as well is, um, you know, if that kind of academic uh, surrounding or environment is is limiting in any way. Uh, that may be a little bit of adjacent to that question. But I think for me, um, hmm, when, when you see alumni coming out of the FAA or Science Academy of Art, there are, there are so many different expressions of that. But when you see the student work, it can, from the outside, look a little bit similar because the projects have to be very uh, kind of consistent academically. Uh, so as I kind of went out of the Florence Academy of Art as a student and transitioned into teaching, I still felt that I was able to separate who I was artistically from who I was uh, as an instructor and an, as a representative of that uh, institution in a way. So I didn't feel that there was any kind of dissonance or any conflict between my sort of artistic endeavors and you know, what I was teaching or what I was part of the teaching. But, of course, in any environment, you're going to also have the summary of all the different people and opinions, uh, you know, within that. And I think that can be the benefit also of a uh, kind of academic learning, that you get slightly different opinions, maybe different advice, kind of all speaking within the same, same world, but there will be maybe slightly different solutions. Um, you know, provided by the various uh, instructors. And sometimes there will be a, uh, a contradiction as well, which I think is always very interesting because a contradiction is not necessarily a right or wrong. It can just, it can just represent different ways of solving the same, you know, challenge in a way. Yeah. So, yeah. so as a, I'm speaking about this uh, loosely, um, but... Yeah, just kind of exploring that answer as I sort of trot along now. Um, I I did not feel that I was uh, restrained artistically when moving out of the first career as a student and into um, into the, the position as a as an instructor there. I think I was able to compartmentalize it and maybe also just my my tendency, you know, my artistic translation, you know, is quite rooted in an academic tradition in any way, just visually speaking. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay. Did I answer it? Um, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Okay. Um, <laughs> Carlos in New York says, I wanted to ask if you ever feel academic 
Sorry, I wanted to ask if you ever feel your academic background interferes with your interest in self-expression with paint. So you kind of touched on that, but is there anything else you want to... Um, yeah, so so I, I don't actually. I feel on the contrary. Maybe also this feels especially strong because I felt very much on the the memory, the recollection of wanting so badly to paint well and to be able to paint a portrait well and not being able to do that. Like that is, you know, a while back now, but it is a, a very strong memory. So being on the other side of that, um, so for instance, an, a, um, what I did kind of before and post-graduation, I had... Um, some of the same themes I had painted before going to the France Academy of Art, I revisited, but now with a bit more of a toolkit and skill sets to explore those ideas. So that was really satisfying, kind of seeing actually that, that, that liberty of being able to express what I wanted visually because now I had the tools to do so. So I didn't feel the strain at all. But I could also maybe say here that I didn't, I, I didn't allow myself to be restrained. I don't know. There is an aspect that happens, can happen a bit, um, you know, in, in academic thinking because it can very often evolve around certain uh, paradigms um, and sometimes that can be a bit dogmatic, right? And this is a way that a school will create a consistent curriculum and project uh, so that the, it is a consistency for anybody who involves in it and kind of goes through the training. So... You know, that's kind of where those uh, creative restrictions can occur, too. But I, I guess I didn't, I didn't have any issue with it just because I felt that there's a separation here. I was able to compartmentalize, you know, Cornelia, the art student, and Cornelia, the artist, and the future artist. And I was able to kind of merge those two quite fluently, I think. Um, but then, you know... I also dabble with photography and working with photography, and that is a taboo in a lot of uh, academic circles. So maybe I could have broke away a little bit from that academic mindset, uh, you know, working with such tools. Uh, but I, I wasn't really faced with it, <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. It didn't really bother me whether it was that way or that way. I, I, but it is an important aspect, maybe, that when you are a student, you know, you adhere to very specific uh, Structures, but that doesn't have to define you artistically, and I and I, I never really let it define me. So, I think through that, I, I haven't really felt artistically restricted. No. Yep. Um, OM in New York again says, which strategies were integral to developing your own style after graduation from the Florence Academy? The element of style, or the question of style, I think is also uh, something that comes up uh, a bit. Uh, I've heard that question formulated uh, in sort of different ways, like how do you develop your style? I think it's one of those things that happen naturally. Like to me, I never thought that, oh, what is my style? What am I going to be defined by? Or it ha maybe can be that way for some uh, sort of artistic uh, directions or for some artists. But I, I never really had that as a goal. It was a bit more indirect. I think indirectly I may have developed a style you know, as a consequence of what I'm attracted to visually um, and what I'm attracted to thematically in the visual language. So 
Um, maybe one thing here is just that I, I do think that I, I really enjoy femininity. I really enjoy beauty. And I really enjoy, you know, femininity. I know it's a bit of an abstract word because what does that mean? But, you know, I, I do, I do love princess dresses and, you know, when I have a chance to paint them, <laughs> you know, I will. So I do enjoy, you know, something that's floral, feminine, um, beautiful, tranquil. Like those are kind of qualities I, I often enjoy working with. So I think through just working with what one are interested in and gravitates towards, that sort of stylistic component, it just emerged. That being said, I think that there are some colleagues of mine who have a very strong like, body of work, they have a very strong vision, and they were able to get that vision uh, very early from graduating. Nick Alm, for example, comes to mind, uh, which I think is great. So I don't know what his process were there, if, if he would say the same thing or if he had a mood board discussion. I, I don't know. I can just uh, speculate. <laughs> so I never did. So it's just always been a little bit more random, maybe, <laughs> for me. Yeah. Okay. I'm just laughing at the idea of Nick Alm having a mood board. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, just from talking to him, he doesn't sound like the sort of guy who has a mood board. Um, <laughs> Trevor Thomas says, um, if you had to make a work of art that wasn't a painting or a drawing, what would you make? Hmm. And it could be anything. Even anything yeah, that I don't know. And I think I, I would make music. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't know how to, to play an instrument. But that is, uh, is a yeah, genre that is very, very dear to me. Okay. Good. Nice. <laughs> um, well, you don't have to know how to play an instrument these days to be able to make music. That's true. <laughs> yeah. There's another... Yeah. You've got, you know, growing computer skills now, so you never know. My branch out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so as you say, you got your, your MFA in Canada. How did that training... Oh, yeah, BFA. With, yeah. Yeah. How did that training with its emphasis on conceptual, uh, the conceptual side of making art, how did that help you now? Because the reason I ask you is a lot of people who only go through an academic training, they get at the end and they can paint beautiful paintings, but they have a lot of trouble knowing what to paint or why they're painting or what, you know, being able to draw something from inside themselves out and use the great training that they've got to express themselves. So because you had that first, and I know it was an anguished kind of, experience for you, <laughs> but you still had it, you know what I mean? You had the rigor of con concept and you had to defend and do all that sort of stuff. So how do you think that helps you now, or does it? Mm, I'm not sure if it does. Um, I I think that the, uh, the uh, translation or the connection that an artist can have like through their creation to their painting uh, the hope is that there's going to be some translation of a thought or emotion. And and I care deeply about that. And I always have, before going to conceptual uh, sort of art school by, by default, <laughs> by accident almost. Um, so, 
and it's an interesting notion, and and I wonder if it is an aspect of art that uh, is a little bit difficult to teach. You know, uh, this uh, aspect of being able to translate something, evoke an emotion. How how do one do that? I don't think that my conceptual art school background did anything for me in that regard because the translation of emotion it's not semantics or rhetorical uh so i'm not going to to separate that but i will say just in terms of the the bachelor of fine art experience for me um there were other classes that were enormously helpful like i think that the conceptual art training obviously i was in the wrong place and it wasn't for me so it it hasn't really been anything that has benefited me in my career maybe apart from having a familiarity with what it is because you know art is a uh, word in a crisis through uh, representing so many or representing anything anything can be art and to have conceptual art and traditional art all kind of umbrellaed um, in the same kind of category um, it's very confusing so yeah uh, having a little bit of familiarity with kind of the going going on, I guess, or the different expressions of art, you know, it's it's helpful, but it's not something that informed anything of what I have done artistically. But I think that there are other aspects to being a professional artist that is also really important. Uh, for example, being able to to, to write okay, I think it's okay. I mean, I think it is uh, helpful to be able to, let's say, write a bio, to write a CV, to be able to formulate one's thoughts and to be able to express one's thoughts. Um, but I would say there's the other part of my Bachelor of Fine Art degree that uh, exercise that element, like English, for example. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> knowing how to write okay or to like build a, a sentence structure or to build a, a thesis you know, um, yeah, that's helpful. Um, but I, I'm not sure. Maybe on some uh, deep sort of subconscious level it will have had an impact, but nothing that I can point to uh, from yeah. that background. So you said you started off in psychology. So number one, what drew you to psychology, you know, considering you're such a, you know, an obvious kind of artist? So what drew you to psychology? And then how long were you in psychology before you switched to Art. Yeah, okay. So I I always, since childhood, I think I was pretty serious um, as a child. And if I look at uh, some um, some pictures of my childhood self, so, some given to me by some friends of mine, and like in this party of like toddlers or 10-year-old, like I'm sitting there with a party hat being pretty serious and everybody else is laughing. <laughs> I don't know if that was uh, that was the, the summary of, of my childhood. I don't think so. I think I, I like to laugh as well as a kid. But I, I think I tend to be pretty introvert and uh, being very much a observer and doing a lot of thinking. I think I was, yeah, I, I did think a lot and speculate a lot and wonder a lot. And I, I enjoyed, um, you know, playing on my own, being self-sufficient in that way. But I also enjoy people and, and social. And so 
maybe that kind of gravity towards psychology and the potential of the mind, uh, it, that interest started very early for me. Um, yeah, so, um, um, so th- yeah, I, don't, I can't point to a particular situation, but it's a little bit more of like kind of gravitational pull that you have or don't have mm. sort of from the beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that so I was kind of vacillating a bit between psychology and art, and then I decided on psychology because it's the more practical decision for sure. And then I changed my major to uh, uh, to fine art, and my my parents were quite concerned. But I felt <laughs> like <laughs> I want to make that decision from my heart, and then I'll just use my mind to you know problem solve and figure out the solutions along the way. So that was a process for me and very much a conscientious uh, decision. Right. And how long did you do the psychology for before you switched? Ah, right. So, uh, so I went to a international baccalaureate, which is an alternative uh, sort of high school, um, where I also had a higher level psychology. So that certainly propelled my interest for it. And then uh, I think probably uh, about a year into to my university studies, I switched into to fine arts. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And <laughs> your parents must have been really impressed when you got all the way through the art college and were like, "Well, that didn't. That was rubbish. I have to go to Florence now." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been very fortunate because even if they didn't agree with my decisions, they supported me in my results. Ah, uh, that's brilliant. Um, somewhere in the mix, you spent some time at Nerdrum, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um couple of summers, if I got it, got it right. Yeah, that's correct. So that was um, actually when I started in Canada, I would come to Norway, which is my home country, for uh, summer vacation. And uh, during one of those uh, vacations, uh, there was an event, uh, a symposium. I went to the symposium, and then I met the Ordnadrum, and I was invited uh, to come and have dinner there. And... Um, uh, yeah, so then just a couple of summers followed where I, I would spend my summers there and then I would study in uh, Canada. And so I actually went there before going to, to Florence. But that's how I found mm. out about the Florence Academy of Art because I had not uh, keyed into the internet yet. It, it existed, but... Uh, <laughs> not for you. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... What was your impression of Oud uh, Nerdrum? He's been such a big figure in the figurative art world, and uh, he seems like just from the, the very little I know, superficial knowledge of it, you know, he seems to be have had a lot of trouble with the Norwegian government, and he se- it seems like, um, you know, there's what we know of him from the outside, and then. I'm curious to know, like, how he's viewed in Norway, you know, because you're Norwegian and you would have, you possibly would have grown up he- hearing about him or not, or... Yeah, so, uh, I heard about him probably when I was about uh, 16 and 17, and that was around about the time that uh, I started to, to paint as well. So I always drew and painted uh, watercolour early childhood, and then I, I started to branch out into oil paints when I was about 16, 17. And um, I remember for the top of my Christmas uh, wish list one year, uh, I asked for uh, um, uh, art books uh, featuring Odd works. So that was my, my very first connection 
to oil paints, kind of moving now from drawing into painting. And uh, <clears throat> I remember just uh, looking at the paintings in the book, trying to figure out which colors they were, you know, just deciphering everything from scratch. Mm. Uh, you know, looking at a color that sort of looks like ochre, looking at the color that looks red, what kind of red is that? And just trying to figure it <laughs> out everything, uh, just by extracting sort of anything I could kind of glean from uh, from those pages. Uh, so that, so yeah, so Ardedum's work were sort of right there um, as I was just trying to, to figure out how to build a, a painting, uh, not knowing anything about how to use a palette knife, <laughs> or which colors to use? <laughs> What's linseed oil? How do I use that? I heard turpentine is a part of the process. Where, where does that come in? So um, yeah, uh, and then in as a part of this my high school education, we had to uh, write a uh, extended essay, which was uh, three thousand words, and that was meant to be an eternity or very long, <laughs> so mm. it, which is which it isn't. Uh, but I decided to do my extended essay on Nordandrum. So, so that was um, kind of a sort of early connection memory for me. So I was absolutely very much inspired and influenced um, by Nordandrum very early on, like from the onset of having the idea that uh, oil paint uh, exists. Mm. Um, and actually, the first time I saw a work of his, it was on a uh, school trip. Um, I was about 16 years old. And uh, we went on a school trip to see a uh, autumn exhibition in Oslo, which is a, a big thing here. And a lot of the work is modern or conceptual. But there was one room painted with dark, dark olive green and the spotlights. And then there was this huge painting on the wall. And I could not believe it. That was one of those things like it just strikes you and creates a bit of a milestone experience. And that was that for me. So um, this painting by Nandrum, it has such a great impact, and it's just completely changed the concept of what I thought was possible. Because I thought that our representational or classical work was long dead, and that it would never come back. It was like buried mm -hmm. secrets from the past is gone. <clears throat> and this was a 16-year-old kind of thinking about this as well. And I know a lot of other 16-year-olds have had those those thoughts as well, right? That you you see something that resonates with you without having any prior knowledge of it. And so that's mm. what this was for me. And it completely created a bit of a paradigm shift in my mind of what I thought was possible, kind of realizing that, wow, this artist lives today, this has been made today in my lifetime, this is possible. So that completely changed yeah, everything for me. <laughs> and probably had a really big impact in terms of um, my choice in pursuing art as a, as a career and really mm. uh, being hungry for this uh, sort of knowledge that I could express myself visually in this way because that is always what I wanted to do, I think, since childhood, really. Um, and then in terms of... Um, uh, being a Norwegian artist and being a representational artist in Norway um, with Ordnadrum, which is uh, the most uh, famous Norwegian artist in Norway, everybody knows his work. And he he does uh, trigger a lot of emotions <laughs> in people. People love his work or they, they don't like, love his work. 
Um, and, uh, you know, he, I think, has a very, I want to say, fresh perspective on things. He don't care, he doesn't care if he offends people's sensitivities, and I think that agitates a lot of people as well. So you have a lot of, you know, he's one of those people that generate a lot of positive or a lot of negative, a lot of strong emotions. Um, yeah, so um, in terms of his impact on my career, it's, I would say it's quite profound through the three mm-hmm. early origins, but kind of becoming older, uh, also artistically speaking, um, I also sort of seek inspiration and knowledge from other places also. So, for example, the turn of the century artist, 1900 or 1800, 1900. So yeah. it's, it's not the one singular source of inspiration for me, but it's been, of course, a major impact in, in my life for sure. <laughs> so were you really starstruck when you met him? Were you, or are you that sort of person? Um, yeah, of course, of course, it's uh, it's really quite surreal. You basically need to see the superhero for the first time, and that was that for me for sure. Yeah, so that yeah. was really, really uh, amazing, really powerful. Uh, I'm very grateful for having experienced that time and those summers, just being there and painting. And that's something I feel it's it's uh, sort of very much with me. Although I also feel like I I you know expand from there in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think in, in Norway it can be a bit frustrating to be uh, a representational artist because if the only artist that they know, a lot of Norwegians are Ognazian or Edvard Munch. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so they quickly want to greet you as being, you know, a so-and-so artist. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's not so simplified as that, you know. Reality is more nuanced and... Uh, um, you know, he is significant in terms of um, my my memory, my life, but I, I also, you know, branch out a little bit, if that makes sense. So I, I don't yeah. feel like he is not the the number one source of inspiration anymore. There's maybe other things, a combination of things for me. So I'm not emulating his work with my work in any way. No, no. No, I've, I've, I don't know who I was talking to recently, but we were talking about that, that it seems like um, he seems like such a charismatic person that it's hard for people who go and paint with him to not end up painting like him. And it seems like a lot of people who, who do spend time around him end up painting like him. And then you'll have the other people like yourself, like Teresa Oaxaca, like Maria Crenn, who, who, can, who were able to go and be with him and still be able to paint them in their own way mm. yeah there's an equation there yeah <laughs> so now that you're living back in Norway will you do you plan to sort of spend a bit more time with them or not or um I mean, uh, not in terms of a student I mean I think no 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 I don't mean no that. <laughs> So um, I, it would be wonderful to just go by there and say hi, but you know, it's uh, you know we keep just very sparsely in in touch. So uh, maybe one day I'll go by there and say hi. But it is also kind of a a different chapter uh, of uh, of my life. That was absolutely meaningful yeah. to me, but it's not a relationship that uh, I kind of kept. Uh, yeah. So okay. Much. Okay. Uh, all right. Stephanie Elizabeth says. 
Uh, how do you stay so ethereal and beautiful while also being one of the most talented people I know? And then as an afterthought, she says, I thought I'd give you a difficult question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you know this person? <laughs> I do. She's my uh, wonderful and beautiful sister-in-law. <laughs> ah, okay. I had a feeling, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sophie. Okay, so um, do you want to answer that? or? <laughs> Hard chance, or I'm um, married. Uh, your little brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's how it works. <laughs> uh, okay, Gregory Perry in Australia again says, "Such an amazing array of skills and a great educator." Uh, I'd last. I'd like to ask what you strive for now. What challenges are in front of you? Uh, all right. So in 2020, we all know, of course, um, coronavirus. Uh, so Did you had you moved back before all that happened, or had you no. moved back to Norway before? No, no, okay. we were in the process actually. So, <clears throat> so there was definitely some challenges uh, there. So we had already decided to uh, um, just uh, focus a hundred percent on uh, our uh, online uh, teaching and mm. uh, painting, so we were going to sort of conclude our uh, about 10-year career at the Florence Academy of Art and then move back to Norway. So the plan was to move to Norway in um, April, and then everything uh, got uh, postponed to uh, July. Mm. So we were basically stuck in a small Jersey City apartment for four months uh, before we were able to, to actually make the move. Um, and now that we are here, the focus is still on uh, uh, online education and, and making video tutorials for that. And so we have uh, presently or at present uh, converted pretty much half of this cute little house that we're renting into a workplace. So half of our living room is a studio uh, that we're doing a lot of filming and then uh, we're also doing a lot of video editing. So. It took on a little bit of a of a different journey than I, I thought it would or in the beginning of my artistic studies or art studies. But uh, this is great too, and I just think it's so exciting to see like how you know technology and communication how it can emerge with, for example, mm -hmm. online education as well. And, it, and I, in our experience, in my experience, there is just so much interest for learning, and people seem to be really hungry for this. Uh, knowledge and information on drawing and painting and that's really remarkable just really seeing that pendulum shift you know even in our lifetime uh, where when I was uh, a child there wasn't any information about classical uh, drawing or uh, painting skills but now there are so many choices including uh, the, the internet as well as a, as a resource uh, for that so that's a really exciting time, I think, to kind of be mm. a classical trained painter, but in today's kind of milieu where we also have these uh, tools that we can connect to people, to students, to clients directly. So it's really exciting to yeah. be a part of that. So that's really the focus uh, for now. And um, uh, so a lot of the, the paintings that I make, I make for my own sort of artistic uh, sort of endeavor and satisfaction. And then there's some that are a little bit more pedagogically oriented, sort of covering a little bit more the basis of, of principles um, that pertains to, to learning and teaching. 
Um, and then uh, some of my other ideas is to branch out a little bit. For those of you who are uh, subscribing to my Patreon page, of course, you know that uh, there's a lot of uh, portrait uh, painting video tutorials already out there. But I'm also looking forward to, to branching out a bit and including, for example, Silas painting, which has been paused for the last couple of years. Um, and I, I like to kind of incorporate that as well, kind of branch out into other genres that are, are dear to my heart. So that's that's my focus, kind of keeping keeping at it, so to speak. Keep uh, teaching, keep painting, and uh, keep uh, um, making, uh, drawing and painting, uh, learning those uh, uh, craftsmanship within those genres, um, uh, so available to all my students. Very good. Um, if there was one underlying theme to all your work, what do you think it would be? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. That's interesting. I, I would maybe say if it's going to just be one short word, maybe um, tranquility. Um, yeah, I think maybe tranquility. If I had to overly simplify it into uh, a single <laughs> word. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do think that there is a sense of calm in a lot of my uh, work. There's a, a little bit of an introspection, and um, uh, I think um, an appreciation of what, what I consider beautiful. Like, I, I do care about about those components, too, like looking at something that is is nice to look at also, that has good color harmonies but also a presence of uh, a person and a presence of emotion that is uh, deeply important to me. And I, and I hope and think that that is, is uh, translated in a lot of my work. Very good. Uh, Fritz Curis Curis again in the Philippines says, what are your thoughts about the avant-garde? Uh, <laughs> then you? Um, I... Well, I I don't understand the question entirely because what avant-garde are we referring to here? Is that modernism? I don't know either. Are we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say I, I'm guessing he um, he's talking about the um, you know the contemporary art world, the the art battles, the the Jeff Koons, the you know that sort of things. I'm guessing that's what he's talking about. That kind of yeah. what's cool and trendy in the art world and expensive. <laughs> Well, you know, that's a, that's a different part of it, I think. It's a bit of, different part of the galaxy. Um, <laughs> and that's not to dismiss non-representational art. I do think that quality, so what creates something, a work of quality, is much more nuanced and complex than being divided into categories. I do think that there are, you know, abstract work that is really interesting and and uh, kind of draws one in. Um, so, you know, I, I do appreciate abstract paintings. It took me a while to kind of get to that point just because I had conceptual uh, art training sort of up to my throat. <laughs> Um, so in terms of, of that component, I also don't want to be so aloof as to dismiss it altogether because, of course, there are people who do think that this is important, who have these tastes, or who use conceptual art as a means to convey something that they find important. So since so many people are involved with it, 
you know, the, you know, I, I'm not going, this is not my place to um, dismiss the importance for them at all. It just doesn't resonate with me. And I think that's a, um, a, a boundary to say, like, yeah, I will dismiss conceptual art. I, I, I don't understand it. It doesn't, doesn't resonate with me. But there are people whose, whose lives, you know, it does communicate with, who are on that frequency. Mm. And so there will be maybe some qualities to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So if someone is listening and they are thinking of doing Patreon, do you have any tips for them? Anything, any mistakes you made that you would, wouldn't make again? In terms of uh, creating a Patreon page? Yeah. Um, I think that if for anybody who are making a patron page um, to to teach or to convey their um, their art, um, it it takes a lot of work and education. Also, it's not something that is um, it's not just about uh, having a camera phone and doing some recordings. It does require diligence and discipline. But if you do, if you are committed to to that, um, then I think it's really, yeah, I think it can be really be worth it. If you have something that you want to share and you uh, believe that a lot of people can connect to it, and you you, you you're willing to take that bet on yourself and go for it, and just uh, but understand that it does require uh, a lot of work as well. It's not it's not an easy fix. Uh, but if you're committed, you can branch out into anything. And uh, speaking as a previous non-computer person, I now can do <laughs> Procreate and Zoom meetings <laughs> and video editing at a pretty high level. Um, so it's just really interesting how we can kind of redefine ourselves a little bit. And I think that's an important aspect, too, that we can – we don't have to be limited by the lack of knowledge at the present. You know, we can we can be flexible and um, really move into a direction. So if you have a goal in mind and you want to to communicate what you do online, then go for it. But, you know, be willing to do the work. Okay. Um, you have over 100,000 followers on Instagram. Do you have any tips for Instagram for people listening? Um, in terms of uh, expanding on Instagram, so I'm just following the recommendations of Stephen here, which is to be consistent <laughs> post frequently, um, which I sometimes uh, um, I am a little bit lazy in that regard, and I I'll let some days pass. But you know, ideally, uh, you want to post uh, regularly and consistently and every day, you know, in order to increase your uh, following. All right, um, and then. Are your the portraits that you do, are they commissions? And if they are, do you have any tips for that process? Because that can be fraught for people as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes. A lot of the work that I do is not commissions. There will be uh, paintings I will do, and then maybe I will sell or maybe not. Or there will be paintings that I have in mind for a exhibition, for example. Uh, and also there will be uh, some uh, commissions uh, sort of uh, in here as well. Um, so with commission portraits, it is it can be challenging, um, especially if the client has very very specific requirements or very specific ideas about how it should be translated. So I would maybe then 
recommend to to have a meeting, to have a discussion, to kind of talk with the client to see what they have in mind. But you can also be a bit selective of which portrait commissions, for example, you take on. Um, I think that uh, taking on a portrait commission once in a while can be interesting, also because I enjoy the challenge of that type of problem solving. How to um, to work with a portrait that, or with a model that, or with somebody who I wouldn't necessarily work with, or uh, you know, translate into uh, into a painting. So I think that a, a idea is just to figure out like what or reflect on why you would want to uh, to work with a portrait commission, and if you are interested in that particular challenge, uh, then I think that's a great direction. But I would also urge you to you know, communicate with the client about what they specifically have in mind. Just let you hash out any, um, you know, different interpretations of what the portrait should include. For example, is it really important that all the millimeter minute uh, shapes or proportions are translated, or is it interesting, or was the client interested in also? Uh, allowing you to embed some of your artistic uh, expressions in the painting, for example. So I think yeah. there's a little bit of a sliding scale there. So you have, you know, portraits or portrait commission or a kind of bracket of that, which is very much geared to uh, just the, the person being depicted in the context of paint and much less about the artist who is making a portrait of them. Does that make sense? So there is... Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that if that is something that you're interested in, great. And then if not, then just, you know, reflect on that a little bit uh, before kind of getting into it. Okay. <laughs> What's your experience of the business side of the art world then? Um, some people have had lovely stories, other people have had horror stories. How has it gone for you? The business aspect of art, well, there... Hmm. It, is, it does have its challenges as well, and if we talk about like what what kind of business aspects can an artist get into, um, there is fortunately a lot of interest for learning, and a lot of people are learning about drawing and painting for their own pleasure as well, not necessarily going into it as a profession. And I think mm. there's a really huge market there. And so certainly in my personal experience, and I think also so observing a lot of my colleagues too, um, a lot of really fantastic artists out there go into teaching as a way to supplement their income because there are several income streams as an artist. You can sell your work once in a while, but very few people that I know of will make a 100% living or, or decent living from that alone. So usually it would be like a supplementary income, like teaching, for example. Hmm. Um, so um, in terms of uh, selling artwork, um, yeah, occasionally that, that happens, <laughs> but like I said, like I, I, I haven't been able to, uh, you know, to, to sell that so many, so much uh, artwork that I can make a living of it. So it's just been like a, a smaller income stream for me. Right. And um, is that through galleries that you would sell or just, you know, from Instagram or online or that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, through galleries, yeah. Occasionally, I've sold work uh, through Instagram or online as well, but uh, but usually it's through through galleries. Yeah. Okay. And what sort of price range do your paintings sell for? 
so a uh, smaller portrait, less than life size, will go from b uh, between uh, 2,000 USD, and then of course our larger sizes go up to uh, 10,000 uh, USD, depending on scale and complexity. You know what the what the theme is. Right. Not the theme, but the scale of it. Yeah, and what so yeah. is included in the painting as well. Okay. Um, okay. Um, I'm at the end. I've got one, one more question. <laughs> no more questions. Can I ask this? Yeah. No, I have one more question. Okay. Uh, I ask this to everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, if there's one thing you could pass on to future generations, what would it be? Hmm. Uh, artistically speaking now? <laughs> no, it doesn't yeah. have to be. Anything? It can be anything. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's one of those uh, profound questions. I really just uh, feel like I need to reflect on my words here carefully. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, very, that's very tricky. I'm, I'm not able to answer that because there isn't a singular answer to that. Not that I can um, consider this on the top of my head. Um, I think that... You know, it's, it's really difficult to talk about the state of the world right now without going into politics and, of course, the health crisis um, and the pandemic. And um, I know, I just, I just hope that in time we will be able to, as a species, uh, prioritize with more patience and awareness um, to to harmonize, I think, uh, our planet and uh, harmonize with each other, not be so divided, but that's very, yeah, non-artistic. But maybe in this challenges of, of living, you know, certainly uh, art and music can be uh, a, um, a way to, you know, meditate upon the challenges of life and uh, kind of process some of the hardships in the context of beauty. Yeah. Good. Very good. Good answer, considering <laughs> you were <laughs> apprehensive. <laughs> um, okay, so what? how can people find you? Um, what's your website? What's your Patreon? How does it, how, how, somebody you know, goes, yes, I really want to connect with Cornelia. What do they do? So you can uh, if you see a lot of uh, my work and also work that I enjoy. Sometimes I will post uh, artwork of um, uh, some masters, past masters, on my uh, um, Instagram as well. So my Instagram is at uh, Cornelia Hannes Artwork, and my uh, Patreon page is uh, patreon.com and I'm slash Cornelia Hannes Artwork, and uh, that will be the two main sites. I do have a older web page, but that is going to be reconstructed a bit, and that is Cornelia.com, CorneliaHannis.com, rather. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I pronounced your surname wrong. I was saying Herons, which is the way it would be pronounced here in Ireland. Yeah. But it's Hannis. Hannis. That's where you're pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so on my Patreon page, you'll be able to find hours and hours of uh, video tutorials. Um, talking about uh, each step of the, the way in terms of the painting process. There has been just a, a lot of focus on uh, portrait painting, but uh, as I mentioned in the podcast as well, and also branching out into other genres to incorporate still life painting 
uh, as well. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about Stephen at all, <laughs> but Stephen uh, is uh, Cornelius' husband, Stephen Bauman, and it seems like his kind of Patreon focus is, is drawing and your kind of focus is painting. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So between the two, <laughs> you've got it covered. You have it with covered. your own <laughs> online academy, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's brilliant. Um, okay. Great. Well, I'll put I'll put links in, in the show notes to all that stuff as well, and um, so people can find you. Um, so brilliant. Yeah, it's been lovely chatting with you. Um, I really like your paintings. I think they're beautiful. I think you have a real, really lovely touch for people um, and for when you're I really like the way you said pearlescence that's lovely I really like that word because it's there is a kind of glowing quality to your uh, to your portraits and your still lives and your landscapes I like them all I liked it all and um, each one is um, I'm, not, I, I'm not generally wild about landscapes or still lives so they have to be good for me to like them <laughs> and yours are uh, because I think when still lives are done well they have a lot of drama and a lot of narrative in them and similarly with landscapes and you've, you've got that going on so it's almost like your skills with um, portraiture and uh, being able to convey the story of the person and what's going on behind the scenes possibly and to to um, bring up bring out the the, the the questions in the in the viewer. I think that translates into your still life and your your landscape work as well. Thank you. And they do have a lovely quality of tranquility about them. And they're the sort of paintings that grow on you. Like some paintings kind of grab you um you know and sort of don't let go of you. Whereas I found that through looking at your paintings that over time they sort of reveal themselves a little bit like what you were talking about with the rose. You know, you, you can the more time you spend with them, the more they reveal. So that's beautiful as well. And then it's been lovely chat, uh, talking to you and seeing the depth of knowledge that you've got um, behind all that. And just as I was saying, it just sort of you're <laughs> just tripping it it's just coming off the top of your head all this uh, great technical stuff and then the fact that you're sharing it so freely and so comprehensively and articulately uh, is great like it's such a fantastic resource that you're providing both both of you actually Stephen as well um, and it's great like for people at, at a time because when you're talking about seeing that Ord Nerdrum painting I had the same thing with um, an Irish artist uh, uh, Francis O'Connor and no hang on Francis O'Toole God sorry Francis um, same thing it was like that moment of I felt physically ill when I saw like, so that a human being living today painted that I didn't think anybody mm -hmm. did that anymore so I, I totally know what you mean, and it's uh, great that it's gone from, you know, there being no nowhere that you could learn that. You'd have to go and hunt out some somebody and find them and try to beat them into teaching you. Mm -hmm. It went from that to ateliers, which, you know, you had to move country most times <laughs> to attend one of them, to what you're doing, which is 
making that kind of level of training available for people who want it. You know, so it's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, this chat. It's been so enjoyable. Uh, really, um, this was great questions and so so many more and so more complicated than what I had <laughs> uh, <laughs> anticipated. But this was great. It was wonderful to to be here on this podcast. I really appreciate you inviting me. No, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. And as you know, I keep in touch with everybody. So you know, I'm sure we keep in touch. But we'll we'll say goodbye for now. All right. Goodbye. So nice to meet you. You take care. Stay well. Okay. Bye. 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 I've never felt this good in my entire life. Make me some spaghetti. Actually, I'd prefer a cup of tea. <laughs> a cup of tea would be lovely. So yeah, just a little reminder, mainly because. Every second or third person who becomes a patron has got in touch with me and said, you know what, I've been listening to your podcast for ages and I didn't become a patron, not because I don't have the money, not because I don't think it's great, I just didn't get around to it. So this is a little friendly reminder that if you'd like to be a patron, you'd like to buy me a cup of tea, go to patreon.com forward slash John Dalton, gently does it, all one word, or follow the link in the show notes to become a patron. I would really appreciate it if you could do that, particularly if you've been meaning to and you just haven't got around to it. It would be great. It would mean a lot to me. All right. Thank you. Bye. How are you doing? I'm good. I've been running around like a lunatic, plugging things in and unplugging things and connecting bits of software and disconnect. And, and other than that, I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I can't complain. Life is good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm good. Just uh, waking up and getting things, go- uh, getting things going here. So, Or actually, not just waking up, but certainly uh, getting things going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, big time difference. Bigger than usual. A lot of the people I talk to, a lot of the arts I talk to are on the East Coast, so it's like five hours, but you're in Denver, so that's seven. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, evening time there for you. <laughs> yeah, heading into it. It's five o'clock, and I think it's 10 a.m. for you, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, just about to hit that 10 o'clock mark. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, now, for someone who's listening, if you're listening, I'm talking to Ron Hicks in, in Denver. And um, just to give you a time context for our, our conversation, if you're listening in the future, today is Wednesday, the 25th of November, 2020. Here in Ireland, we are coming to the end of six weeks of lockdown. We are, I think we're opening up again next Tuesday, 1st of December. That's the plan. Um, it's the usual complicated you know, on opening up, it's like, no, we're not just opening the doors and running out into the street and hugging each other. It's, you know, we're going from level five to level three, and everyone at this stage is like, oh, God, what's level three? I don't care. <laughs> so how are things uh, where you are, uh, Ron? Um, we're 
kind of the same thing actually is happening here. We've uh, had this new wave of um, um, infections or, or, or cases that are um, are coming out now. So it, um, it it we've had like these where they're starting to tighten things down again. You know where uh, some of the um, restaurants have certain res restrictions and things of that nature. Um, so we're kind of we're kind of uh, at least in my area, it, it, it's getting worse, but it's not as bad as it, it is in some of the other areas. Uh, but but the country is getting it's getting a little bit dangerous. Yeah. Um, because of COVID or for other reasons? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, mainly COVID, you know, because and I'm looking at it from just the you know the health side of it. You know, I, I tend to uh, exercise a little bit more caution. My son is a little less. I think he thinks I'm very paranoid, uh, but um, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that's sort of like, oh, better safe than sorry, just in case. So, so yeah, mainly COVID, uh, and of course we just had the election here, so that's. Uh, Did you? Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did that go? <laughs> well, um, it's interesting because it's still going. <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of lawsuits and things of that nature, you know, uh, running through the courts now, so I don't know, we'll see where, where things end up. Right. So what, what, where is it at now? I, I, I was so inundated with it in the run-up to it that I, as soon as it was, the election was over, that part of it was over, I kind of stopped following it. So where, where are you up to now with it? So from my pr perspective, um, Joe Biden is the president-elect. And um, there's been some interference into uh, the actual you know, transition portion of it, where there are a lot of lawsuits, you know, that are running through the courts now uh, about, uh, you know, voting practices, whether some of the, you know, ballots are legitimate and things of that nature. Uh, but many of the states that um, um, that our electors are assigned to, uh, uh, um, they haven't actually had the official electoral college, you know. Um, um, you know, put their seal of, of approval on it, but the states have put their seal uh, on on many of the um, um, the places that, that that Biden won. So he's technically the president-elect, and, and we are now in, in a period where um, he's finally getting like some of the assistance, you know, that happens when you're changing the arms, uh, so to speak. Um, but it was kind of uh, things that probably should have happened a week or so ago are just now starting to happen just because of these things. So it's, it's it's an interesting time. It's it's unprecedented though. We've never really, I, at least I haven't never seen anything like this. Yeah. Um, is it as was it like that when you remember George Bush, George W. Bush, and and Dan Dan Quayle? No. Oh no. Uh, um, let's see. Now that you said it, <laughs> Dan Quayle, I can't think of the other guy's name. Oh, uh, Al Gore. Uh, Al Gore. Yes. God, Dan Quayle. Let's go. Al Gore. You threw me for a loop there. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, you can see I'm a keen observer of American politics. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's a little bit different than that. It, there was um, certainly, you know, um, that single, uh, you know, court challenge, you know, from one state, uh, Florida. And um, you know the, the the vote count was really very quickly uh, very quick, and then eventually you know um, Gore did you know you know concede and and, and we moved on. So I, I think the difference here is um, 
there's multiple cases across multiple states, and um, right. I, I think they're up to maybe like 30 or so uh, of um, cases that have been right. um, uh, uh, put out there, <laughs> and they've lost, wow. you know, pretty much the majority of all of those. So it, it just keeps they just keep rolling, it and we'll see where this all ends. Uh, hopefully, shortly we can move on. Right. The uh, the general impression from over here is like a sense of relief, um, but then is there sort of uh, questioning going on? Like 70 million people, that's a lot of people to vote for um, Donald Trump, you know, and what are we going to do about that and how are we going to reach out and make friends and figure out what happened there or, or, is, or not? Or, what, is, how is that? I don't know. It, 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 it's It's... Kind of polarizing because if you if you think about it, you know it, it's almost half of the. Well, it, it depends on how you look at it. I think in terms of like the popular vote, you know, uh, Biden certainly uh, across the country is. I think he's leading by some four or five million. I I, I don't remember what where, where they're at on that, but or it may be that when it's all said and done. But in terms of the the electorate, the people that actually voted, you know, very very close. If you think about how how many people voted, um, to being like uh, a country that is split in half, um, uh, yeah. uh, some have certain values or things that they hold, you know, uh, near and dear to, and uh, you have the other half. So I just think it's going to be um, uh, very difficult to, to to pull that in, especially with. The kind of things that, that that are out there right now, uh, where there's like whether they're conspiracy theories or you know people that saw things that are disenchanted some kind of way, you know, it, I think it's going to be a very difficult job of whoever you know got in to um, you know, to pull that all together. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me on the uh, American Politics Podcast, Ron. And <laughs> <laughs> and you have my. Un- un- I am not very political, let's put it that way. Uh, I know, it's hilarious. It's two not very political people talking about politics. It's guys. Um, Okay. Um, (laughs) Now, uh, for someone who's listening who hasn't seen your work, how would you describe your paintings? Um, I would say my current body is sort of this... um, um, I, I have to first say that I, I'm starting to see my paintings, you know, well, actually this, this happened, you know, some time ago, but I, I consider myself more of an abstract artist than anything else. And um, um, and I'll say with representational tendencies, if you if you want to throw that in there. <laughs> um, I started to come to a conclusion several years ago that, um, you know, there's something more to this art thing than just, you know, just transferring information. So I started out very traditionally and then um, I started to see that there are uh, these common things across some of the disciplines that are out there that um, um, uh, I find that I can I can exploit. So I, I probably would say that uh, I'm somewhere in between an abstract and a representational painter. If I had okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I know that's right now. We've no, it's all right. You've, there's so many questions that come in on social media for you that, you know, by the end of it, if, if someone is a little bit unclear about the answer, they're going to be perfectly clear by the end. <laughs> um, okay, so into or, the questions. Very <laughs> or they, they stop listening at the politics end. <laughs> um, okay, so um, 
<laughs> Brad Davis in Cincinnati uh, says, what artists have you found to be influential as a painter? And Paul Levin in Sweden says, I'd love to hear about the influence of the Vienna painters, Klimt, uh, Schiele, and uh, Krakowska, uh, um, on especially your latest work. And uh, Skip Rody in uh, North Carolina, Skip's a friend of the podcast on Patreon. Thanks for the tea, Skip, and thanks for the how to pronounce your name properly. Uh, so Skip says, fantastic work, Ron, and thanks for all you do, John. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I see Gustav Klimt influence in many of your works. What are your biggest influences? So three questions all about influences there. Yeah, uh, I think I'm influenced by, uh, across the board, many artists, and they, they range from uh, artists that are, you know, very traditional to some that, uh, you know, uh, um, like Cy Twombly, where there's <laughs> they're sort of like on the opposite end of, of, of the rainbow. And for each of those artists uh, across the, uh, you know, like, like Deven Korn or uh, uh, you name it, you know, I love Sargent's work, you know, Clint, you just mentioned, um, I think that uh, uh, I can draw in influence from from all of um, um, the, the aforementioned. Um, in terms of uh, you specifically mentioned Clint, I, I think that you know uh, uh, you might draw some you know similarities you know in you know. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I guess maybe some of the decorative way that he sort of approached some of his, his works and, and uh, you know, how he combined the figure uh, with some of those things. But I'm kind of going after something completely different. Uh, uh, if, if, if I had to to describe that, you know, I'm really trying to reconcile this idea that there's a separation between um, uh, the representational world, the abstract world, non-objective, um, and, and I wanted to find these these, these, these common grounds, and 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 in, in, in what's mixed in with that is sort of my uh, emotional baggage that uh, uh, I, I'm expressing out of uh, you know while I'm creating these works. So 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 it's, I, I just have a different uh, way of seeing um, how I'm approaching these. So so I I can't can't speak to some of the Vienna. Uh, um, artists and things of that nature because um, I, I, my, I draw my influences, you know, very well. I, I don't think it's very different than most people do, but I don't really, you know, go to one artist and say, hey, you know, this is the thing. I, I, I'm sort of a, a guy that absorbs information and then takes that in and internalizes it. And then I'm able to take that information and, and, and spit it back out. So, uh, um, I know that's a, a very vague way of answering that question, but I, 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 I would say that I have had influence from many artists, but I wouldn't say that you know there's one or two or a specific one that says just that hey, um, you know that's what I'm patterning my life after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, well, some artists do. They're like, oh my God, if I could paint a painting like Rembrandt, that's it. I would die a happy person. Um, and there's that type of artist, and then there's more like what you describe of like just com like being a big sponge and absorbing it all in, and then your main influence is yourself. Would that would that be fair? Absolutely. And, yes, and, and actually that's the, the whole point of the direction that you know my work has taken over the years. It's 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 it, it, and this has all always been there, and, and I'm sure we'll get into more of this as we continue. 
but uh, I, I'm, un, I'm un, under the impression now, at least for me, that um, the days of how I started out, you know, uh, my career, you know, when you're young and you're, you know, you're, you're trying to make your way is very different than where, I'm, where I am now. Because I started out thinking that, you know, if you could draw things or paint things exactly to the T, that was like, you know, you were like the most amazing artist in the world. And as time developed, I was like, wait a minute, you know, it, there's something different going on here. There, there's, there's something, there's more to this thing than just this transference of information. Uh, uh, there's the uh, emotional side. Uh, there's, uh, it, it, which is why I tend to think more abstractly now. There's this abstract the dialogue, this harmony that comes along with, with, with this, 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 that's greater than just that transference of information. So, you know, when I was younger, you know, it was really about, you know, Transferring that information and getting, you know, you know, painting pimples on <laughs> and, and things of that nature. And then it was like, well, why am I doing this? You know, what is my purpose as an artist? And I think that's the thing that has uh, consumed me as I can I continue to paint. Right. And have you arrived anywhere with that? Like, what your purpose is as an artist? Um, actually, yes. What I'm doing now is what I consider. Uh, what I should be doing now, will that be the same thing in the next three, five, ten years? I don't, I don't know, but there's this thing for me it, 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 that I'm trying to get to, and it's this honesty in my work, and I think my work is directly related to who I am as a person, and um, I've been starting to change the way that I even approach teaching now, because I think it's very, very difficult to truly understand how you should be expressing unless you really understand, A, who you are, and then why you're doing it. And then that dictates what you should be, you know, putting out there. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's, where, that's sort of where I am right now. And, and it's, 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 it's ongoing. It's, it's not, it's, you, you, it's continued. So how are you bringing that into your teaching? Is there, like, you know, personal development <laughs> in the first six months, and then you get onto the painting, or how do well, how do you bring it in? Well, and and, and actually, I'm I'm at that uh, pinnacle right now. I'm, I'll be teaching a workshop in Scottsdale uh, in in May, and it'll be one of the first in this series because I, you know, talking to the uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, at the Scottsdale School of Art, uh, um, uh, in talking to the the uh, the director there, I said, you know, I don't really have a desire to really teach or, or talk much about technique because, to me, technique is a byproduct of who you are, uh, and, and you find ways. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's a certain section of people that will paint because they, they, they enjoy painting, and they, they might see something and they want to replicate it. And then there's, uh, you know, uh, artists that are, are searching, and I'm more on that searching side uh, and, and the exploration. So um, the way that I'm, I, I'm, gonna, I'm planning to approach my teaching is, is really to tap into, well, how do we figure out who that is and what you should be doing? Because what happens is you get, I think, a bunch of people out, out there that are painting what I consider to be more in a more pretentious way. You know, you really are not uh, painting, you know, that truth, so to speak. You're, you're sort of, uh, and, and, and I'm guilty of it because there's been many years as, uh, you know, uh, as I was out, uh, you know, doing what I do, you know, I was like, huh, um, what is, um, I'm painting more for the masses than painting for, for me and my heart and my soul. 
Uh, and I think that's where we where I, I I started to make my changes. Like, am I am I really painting because I should be doing this, or am I painting these ideas or these things because I think someone else will like this or want me to paint this uh, uh, subject matter or, the, or, the, or these things? Right, and that's like what you were, what you were describing as pretentious art. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I just think that you know we have so much more that we could explore. Uh, uh, and then uh, what I, I was telling my wife was I'd hate to get to the end and go, gosh, you know, I really should have explored that. You know, and I, I said this many times when I've had like interviews and things of that nature. But I I hate to get to the end and go, gosh, you know what? I should have tried that, but I didn't. And but I made a bunch of paintings that people I thought people would like. Uh, yeah, it's not soul satisfying at all. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, okay. Cameron Copley Hessig in Florence says, How does the painting start for you? And Carrie Pierce in Illinois, Carrie's a former guest on the podcast, um, she says, How do you start painting? Is it all planned or is it intuitive? Um, I would say uh, it's, it's all intuitive at this point. Uh, I start with this what I call call and response uh, approach to painting. And a lot of people think that, you know, all of a sudden I, I flipped a switch and I'm doing something very, very different. You know, a lot of these ideas I've been carrying around for the last 15 years and, and they've sort of been underneath a lot of my paintings. And then that dialogue gets covered up with, you know, uh, maybe some more representational uh, uh, attributes and things of that nature. So really my initial um, start my paintings is just breaking up the canvas and um, my thought is as soon as you especially if you have something that you know uh, that is of a different value or uh, or tone as soon as you lay something down on a canvas you've already divided that space uh, uh, in your in, if we're talking about just a two-dimensional world you divided that into like at least two shapes from the very get-go and so there's this process that that, that starts uh, well, you know, now that I've divided this space, and it starts out very, very abstractly, um, and, and I will say this, there's, I do know that there's always going to be like this figurative sort of thing that ha happens e eventually, but I, uh, unlike what I would do when I first started, uh, now I wait for the um, the work to kind of tell me what to do and as to how many people or if there's going to be more than one you know what's that going to be like? You know, I, I sort of, I sort of intuitively allow that to be what it is, uh, um, as, as I um, as I continue to work. Now, sometimes, with that said, you know, I have, you know, you know, if I'm I'm running around or I have my sketchbook out, you know, and something comes across my mind, I will, you know, scribble you know, like these shapes and ideas down, and then just save them. And, uh, you know, the next time I look at it, maybe I can draw some inspiration from those things. So um, it, 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 my, my process is, <laughs> it's, it's really, um, when you're gonna, you guys are going to probably think that I'm a, a, a madman because there's no rhyme or reason to what I'm doing now. It's totally intuitive, and I go with the flow. And I, I, I find that when I, when I allow myself to use some of the things that I've picked up over the years, uh, and threw into my, I call it my intuitive uh, tool belt, uh, and, and they go in the back of your head or in your mind, and you're 
not really thinking about it. And then you you pull them out at, at various at various times. I, I think if you you know this is just a me thing again. If if I if I stick to like a more formulaic way of approaching my work, it becomes very static and then um, uninteresting to me. So. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I have to say my structure are very, very, very abstract and, and intuitive at the very beginning, and then I, I find myself as I continue to work. Right. Very good. Uh, Leet O'Malley in Australia. Leet is a longtime friend of the podcast. Thanks for the tea, Leet. That's lovely. Um, so Leet says, Ron, I'd love to know what informs uh, your work on any particular day. Does the idea flow from previous sketchbook entries, or is it inspired, uh, or is it, in, or is it inspired moments typically? With this in mind, could you talk about any most recent piece you are excited about? Oh man! So this is sort of a continuation of the last uh, um, uh, yeah. thing we just talked about. Um, I, I would say yes. Uh, some of it does come from sketchbook inspiration. Most of it is. Um, me breaking up the canvas, you know, in, in in a very intuitive, abstract way, and then finding myself as I continue to uh, to work uh, through my paintings. Um, what I do find um, that is different about what I'm doing now, um, more so, is uh, I, I'm getting in touch with my with myself, which is a kind of a scary thing because there's some things that you know I've I've had in you know in my my past that um, this is sort of like therapy for me in a sense. You know, where, um, uh, and you can understand, like, in, in, in the States here, you know, you know, I have been, like, racially profiled, things of that nature. So there's all of this baggage over the years, uh, all the way up to I was probably about in my, you know, mid-40s or so. Uh, uh, and it, it, the thing that I, I, I used to do is just say, okay, hey, this is the way it is. I, I tamp that down, throw it in the back, and then kind of leave it there. But there's always this these things that are, you know, in your head and you want to say something about them or express them in, in your work or some yeah. kind of way and um, I would just not deal with it. So a lot of that, you know, if you're talking about the process, you know, is, is running through my head as I continue, as I'm, as I'm uh, applying some of these things. So we had talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, you know, like some of the mark makings and things that I do. Uh, uh, some of those shapes are just not random shapes. They, they are, they're, they're, they're me and in, 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 in my meditative state, sort of expressing myself. Uh, you know, in, in the form of these, these shapes or these, you know, digging into the, the, the paint skin, pressing into it. You know, things like that, uh, just to get some of this, you know, you know, onto canvas and, 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 and deal with it. Uh, and the scary thing about that whole process for me is I'm at the very, very tip top because it is so scary. It's like, well, how do I let this out and how much do I let out and when do I do this? And that's when the art takes on just a different flavor than just, hey, you know what? That's a, a pretty flower. I think I'm going to paint it. Nothing wrong with that, but <laughs> I'm seeing things different. Yeah. I don't so, that that question. I'm not sure if... Uh, uh, it did one part. I'll get back to the other part in a minute, but something's occurred to me. Um, how, like, have there been pieces that you've stood back from and gone, wow, okay, I really got that out. I really figured that thing out, but no one is ever going to see this painting. Or, you know, I'm just, that's too much. I'm going to put that one away. Or, you know, has it, has it, how has that gone? 
Um, the interesting thing is each painting is a part of me, so each painting has a little bit of that dialogue. So um, that's the scary part. Um, there are some things that I would like to, you know, well, actually, it's not going to be a like to. I am going to um, express in a way. I'm not sure how it's going to be received. And I'm at the point now where it's, it's, it, it, it goes back to that either painting for the man masses are painting for for, for 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 the truth so to speak so so yeah. there hasn't been anything yet uh, but I imagine you know as I continue to work I, I don't know I, I'm gonna have to just be as honest as I can and put it out and if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't but <laughs> you know in my former life I said hey you know what I, you know maybe I shouldn't put this out on the you know on the market but now I um I, I, I feel comfortable enough to, you know, and it's, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to do anything like outrageously crazy or anything like that, but um, <laughs> yeah, maybe no one wants to see my baggage, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and that's the, you know, that, that's the fear, or maybe I don't want it out, uh, so. Yeah. Well, I think see. people respond to authenticity. That's my experience mm -hmm. anyway, and. I don't know if you know that Ernest Hemingway quote where he goes, says, uh, oh, there's nothing to writing. Writing is easy. You just sit down at the typewriter and bleed. 